welcome to Failing Forward. I'm here today with Sarah Eka. Sarah, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Emily. Glad to be here again. My name is Sarah Eckhoff, and I support gender program quality and impact for care. And you did one of our very earliest podcasts called Look to Line 238 that was about how we're measuring gender and our impacts on gender. Tell us a little bit about your topic for today. So today I'm going to be sharing uh, a bit of a similar experience, actually. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about our peers process and how the year before last, we offered an opportunity for projects, initiatives, and programs to opt out of reporting against our gender marker. Right. Before we dive all the way in, the question I ask absolutely everyone, why is it important for us to be talking about failure? I think without reflecting on what didn't work, we're less equipped to identify opportunities to adapt and, and achieve the outcomes that we set out to achieve. Um, a, a parallel that's that's less uh, related to CARES work, but my own personal life. Um, I recently ran an ultra marathon, uh, a 50K trail race. I spent months training in the lead up. Um, and after each longer run, especially the ones that didn't go well, uh, I really reflected on why I didn't have the, the results that I had been aiming for. What were the factors? What within those could I really control moving forward? Um, hydration, fueling, rest the night before, et cetera. Um, and while I'd love to say that each run got instrumental, like, you know, instrumentally better, um, improvement isn't linear like that. Some, some runs were still not so great. Um, but each time I went out and each time I reflected afterwards on the things that didn't work and the things that I could control, the, those pieces got better. And, and I think that's really what learning is all about. Congratulations on the ultra marathon. That's really exciting. Yeah, thanks. It was, um, it was an effort. <laughs> so tell us a little more about the context of your example. So I mentioned that um, annually we have this peers process um, for those who are not as familiar with it. It's an opportunity annually um, based on CARES fiscal year for project, projects, programs, and initiatives to enter data around their particular project around certain metrics related to program quality, implementation, reach, and impact. Um, one of the tools that we use to measure gender program quality or the level of gender integration in programming is our gender marker, um, which has been discussed, I think, by my colleague Isadora Key and other episodes on the pod. Um, and previously, um, starting in 2016, submitting gender marker scores as part of this annual peers process was mandatory. Um, each year, we had a handful of projects that didn't submit gender marker scores or submitted scores that were on the left tail of the continuum, unaware or harmful. And follow-up on those scores often unveiled that the application of the gender marker may not have been very useful. Um, projects that were strictly focused on procurement, for example, um, we had a couple of initiatives that supported G7 meetings, projects that were in closeout during the first month or two of the fiscal year and were not implementing activities, et cetera. Um, and then the feedback that we received from program teams when we did this follow-up, as well as leadership across the Federation was, why don't we just offer a not applicable option? Why don't we offer this opt-out, if you will? Um, and so the fiscal year before this last one, we did. We offered this option. And then what happened? How did that turn out? So instead of having a handful of projects not reporting gender marker scores, 
we had 273 projects that didn't report gender marker scores. So we went from about one to 2% of our total portfolio annually to nearly 20% in a single year. So why hadn't they applied it? Well, there are a lot of reasons and understanding the relevance of gender and thus the, mar the gender marker to a project really varies across our portfolio. Peers forms are incredibly long and arduous to fill out already. So it's completely understandable that if there's an opportunity to enter less data in that very, very short window of data entry, that projects took it, especially if they didn't connect that relevance piece. And while we tried to provide guidance on what were acceptable reasons or, or appropriate reasons for opting out and requested teams to provide reasons for why they didn't, some of those reasons didn't really track. So for example, we saw project teams saying that they were in the closeout phase, yet they had 12 months of implementation in that reporting fiscal year. And so what did you do next? During the validation period, so after the data entry process has concluded, there's a window for peers data validators uh, to take a look at the data that's in there. Does it make sense? Does it seem like it's accurate? And we do a little bit of uh, you know auditing or following up and accompaniment. So I actually followed up on every single one of those 273 projects. I reviewed their project, the scope, the timeline, um, and where relevant, which was actually for most, if not all, I requested that they complete the marker and submit it. We also debriefed with several departments and teams across the Federation on how and why this had happened. And for this past fiscal year of reporting, we elected to remove the opt-out option. And so what would you do differently if you could do it all over again? <laughs> I think it's easy to say I wouldn't suggest offering the opt-out, but I actually think that this was a really important experiment for us to try on. And when I look back at how we approached it and the lead up, the guidance that we tried to offer in the peers form and the follow-up that we did afterwards, I wouldn't actually change anything. I think this was really important learning and a lot of things have really been helpful as a, as a result of this failure, um, this experience and, and the reflections and dialogue and discussion that came afterward. And say a little bit more about that. Like, what would you crystallize were the key learnings there? We have removed the opt-out. So that's a straightforward action that was taken. But almost more importantly, this experience really surfaced for me that in addition to continuous training on the gender marker, because we constantly have a lot of staff turnover, people have so many functions and responsibilities in their roles. So that, that sort of refresher aspect, um, those reminders that this tool is there and really useful, it's really critical to institutionalize the value of the gender marker as a program quality improvement tool that isn't just a tick box exercise to be filled by a meal person every year during peers. It's a tool that should be used by everyone interfacing with program to assess the level of our gender integration and in programming and identify those opportunities for improvement. So I think that that those were really helpful reflections that are always kind of out there, but this was a very critical moment that demonstrated that particular piece for me and really kind of informed some of our, our actions in the follow-up. You talked about this as an experiment. Is there anything that having the data from the experiment allowed you to do or decisions it allowed you to make differently than you would have if we hadn't ever tried it? 
Absolutely. Prior to doing this, the suggestion or the request for having this um, not applicable or opt-out option had surfaced almost every year. Um, And it was really important to take on that recommendation, to take on that feedback and really try it on. Say, okay, um, this has been something we've heard across different teams several times over. Uh, let's see what happens if we try it. And I think having the hard data that opt-outs and lack of reporting um, that were maybe not in sync with the guidance that we had put forward. So for example, those aspects of projects saying that they were in closeout or in startup, but they had you know nine to 12 months of implementation during the fiscal year. Recognizing that it was potentially ill-used was really important data for us to feed into our process, recognizing that maybe this isn't something that we should offer moving forward. As you think about that, there's always a cost to running an experiment like that. What was the trade-off? What did we have to do or what did it take to be able to run that experiment and then to recover from it? Yeah, great question. It took sort of sign-off across multiple stakeholders across the Federation to make that change in peers. So that was one collective cross-departmental cross-federation buy-in to to try this. Then there was the sort of same group of stakeholders coming together when we were seeing that there was such a high percentage of opt-out. There was a, a period during that validation process when I was following up with all those projects of alarm. I think there was a little bit of shock and surprise that so many had had taken that opt-out. And I think that that alarm actually was really well-founded. It, it kind of helped us pay attention in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise and really directed our, our attention and our reflection into a process that maybe we would have taken for granted otherwise. And what are the challenges you're still facing? What's next? Meeting the demands for gender marker training and socialization, that that sort of accompaniment piece that I that I spoke to earlier is our prevailing challenge. Alongside other gender colleagues across the Federation, we've developed capacity strengthening tools, guidance to support meaningful use of the gender marker, and there's still a high need and demand for, for those sort of standard gender marker trainings and, and accompaniment approaches. When the gender marker was first launched, Isadora Key, who I mentioned earlier, who has been on the pod before, launched a group called the Gender Marker Superstars. And this was a group of gender marker champions who could support these capacity strengthening and accompaniment demands. And over the years, I think this group has become a little less active, but I'm hoping that we can revitalize it to really meet this prevailing demand for support. And what is one action that you would recommend to other people at CARE or at other implementing organizations based on this experience? I think it's really important to weigh the opportunity costs of offering an opt-out in a reporting system. We spoke about this a little bit in, in some of the questions thus far, but it really may be worth it sheerly from a learning perspective um, to surface some of these things that, that I've spoken to already. But it's important to recognize at the outset what those offsets are going to be. It did require a lot more follow-up during the validation period than, than would normally happen. But as I mentioned That increased intensity and intention with that follow-up really helped us and me in particular to learn things that I wouldn't have otherwise if we had seen the regular amount of reporting against the marker. And how do we use lessons from this failure to improve our impact? 
I think we can continue to surface the value add of project and program teams to thoughtfully complete the marker to, you know, together as a team, not just, not just a meal person doing this through the form. The insights and the lessons that can be learned um, and identified through that process, that reflective process, do advance gender program quality along the continuum. And by virtue of doing that, really lead to more gender transformative programming and impact. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? Because we tend to interrogate failure more intently than success, there's huge opportunity to unfurl all the factors that actually contribute to success when we reflect on failure. So instead of hiding from it, owning failure and really sitting in it has helped, at least me personally, to unlock a lot of insight I wouldn't otherwise. And if you had to sum up your key learning or your most important takeaway from today in one sentence, what would it be? Sometimes you really have to sit in the failure to, to learn important things and identify opportunities to improve. I think if you shy away from it, or when I shy away from failure, I, I don't learn as much as I could. And I definitely learn more when I sit in failure than, than I do when I've had a success. Learning to sit in the failure, I think is something Certainly I can practice. I think all of us could practice more than we do because it's so uncomfortable to sit there. It really is. No one, no one likes to not meet their goal or not have the experience or the outcome that they had hoped for. But I think that that journey is improvement is not always linear. There's lots of failures along the way, but each time we reflect on them, we learn something new and that may lead us down a path that we wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming back and sharing your continued lessons about how we're measuring the way we do gender and what works and what doesn't in that space. Um, really appreciate your time and expertise today. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. For our audience, thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for our next episode of Failing Forward.